0: Hi there. My name is Dr. Travis Holland. I'm a senior lecturer in communication at Charles Sturt University, Australia. This podcast is an exploration into our digital society. It forms the lectures for my class, Envisioning the Digital Society, but also aims to engage you, the listener out there beyond my classroom. If you like what you hear, please send a voice comment through Anchor or Spotify or get in contact via the details in the show notes. We all know what social media is, right? It's that collection of platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, that allow us all to become content creators. But is social media really social? Is it good for society? How do we respond to the unprecedented power and influence of these global corporations? That's one topic of this episode. In conversation with a couple of knowledgeable guests, I also take a look at new developments in generative AI, have a discussion about cyberpunk. Welcome to Digital Society. Social media is a broad label for a collection of websites and apps which focus on providing tools for users to create and post content online. Social networks are a smaller part of this broader group, which focus on facilitating connections between people as their primary service. These are typically organized around profiles curated by individuals and which allow users to make posts either in multiple media formats, such as Facebook, or limited formats, such as images on Instagram and videos on TikTok. Most social networks are advertising supported businesses and they have made the collection and passing of huge amounts of personal data a priority in order to efficiently and effectively sell ads against the user generated content filling their sites. There's an old saying that if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. As a result of their effectiveness in advertising, social networks and other digital platforms have deeply undermined the traditional mass media business model. And it's not because they're stealing content, it's simply because they're better at selling advertisers, that content. The earliest recognizable social networks launched in the mid 1990s. These included GeoCities, Classmates and Six Degrees. Six Degrees was the first which included the ability to fill in a profile. Like other emerging websites and digital platforms, many of these were impacted by the dot-com crash. After the dust settled on that upheaval, new players arrived. These included Friendster and MySpace in 2003, and finally Facebook in 2004. But social media has also taken other forms, blogs, Sites like YouTube, virtual worlds, review platforms, and even podcasts can all be considered social media, even if they're not social networks. Social networks have been accused of facilitating genocide, see Facebook in Myanmar, of undermining democracy in the US and elsewhere, and of causing Tourette's like ticks in teenagers. However, during the pandemic, their effectiveness in connecting people was underlined. Since TikTok tends to function primarily by the recommendation algorithms rather than the profile based of earlier social networking sites, it may not even be considered social media. It's just a feed of content, quite similar to Netflix, for example. What do you think? Is TikTok a social network? Is it social media? Where does it fit? The other interesting thing about social media companies is that they've become hugely powerful and they're big political players. They're giant corporations. This tends to me to sound a bit like the corporations of cyberpunk. This dystopian world where technology, flesh, fiber intermingle I had a conversation with Dr. David Cameron about cyberpunk, and that's what I'm going to play now. You may know the term cyberpunk from the recent video game by that name, Cyberpunk 2077, but while that game certainly adopted a certain recognizable cyberpunk aesthetic, the idea has a much longer and deeper history. A cyberpunk world is one in which the human body is a commodity at the mercy of techno capitalist systems. It's vaguely futuristic but also lives in the here and now. And to talk about cyberpunk with me today, Dr. David Cameron, Senior Lecturer in Communication here at Charles Sturt. Hi, Dave. Hi, Travis. How are you? Yeah, going okay. Here here Uh, we are
1: in cyberspace. Who'd have thought?
0: (laughs) Right. That's exactly exactly the thing. Cyberpunk always has this kind of futuristic tone to it, but um, where it's most valuable for us to think about is, is what aspects of cyberpunk are living now, so we we'll, we'll come to that.
1: What is cyberpunk? Good question. I mean, at, at its fundamental um, definition, you would describe it as a subgenre of fiction, and particularly, I would say, speculative fiction or perhaps science fiction. So it's a it comes out of um, a fictional storytelling genre, but there is a kind of um, aesthetic or worldview that comes with it, and I think. Yeah, you know, the cyber is probably self-explanatory. Anyone that's read some of the materials uh, in this subject, for example, would understand we're talking about technology. Um, the cyber in cyberpunk, particularly, is um, related to digital networks. That that sense of cyberspace, mm-hmm. the Matrix, the web, the internet, um, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, uh, the blending or augmentation of humans with technology, you know, that sense of plugging in and downloading into our brains. So the cybernetic. Um, so the cyber, I think, is fairly self-explanatory. The punk bit is interesting. So if you think about uh, punk music, and and you and I are kind of old enough to, to kind of, uh, you know, see punk music as a, as a genre of music, Travis, it's probably become a little bit more mainstream now. But you know there was an aesthetic around punk music which emerged sort of in the 60s and 70s mm. around um you know rebelling or responding to the the kind of corporatism around rock music around popular music um being anti-brand anti-government uh living outside kind of normal society or even outside the law you know um and a kind of do it yourself approach as well which is interesting that idea of um, you know, in punk music, it was the sense of, if you don't have to be the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, I can go down, pick up a second-hand guitar as long as I can learn three chords and yell a lot, I can be in a punk band um, cyberpunk has this sort of similar thing where it's about high technology but often about the everyday or but the, the classic kind of definition of cyberpunk is low life you know, mm-hmm. people living on the edge, outlaws, criminals uh, you and I, Travis, <laughs> <laughs> um, but high-tech, and it's an, it's an interesting blend. So uh, it's a kind of compendium word, you know, cyber and punk, and together it has that sense of high technology, but um, anti-establishment, anti-corporate, do-it-yourself, living outside the law.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so we see that in, well, the, the probably the prototypical, the most well-known um, cyberpunk story out there is, is William Gibson's Neuromancer, would say which is a story about this kind of um ex-hacker you know that that used to uh, go into a mainframe and and for in this world in this future the the frame the mainframes are very physical they're, they're, they're something you see um, whenever you're kind of plugged in and um neuromancer is about this the way that the systems kind of sp- has spat this guy out case and he's uh, journey to to get plugged back in because it's become a kind of drug for him but also he's rebelling and fighting against the people that control it so
1: yeah and it's that you know this is where the concept of uh you know the matrix comes from if you think about the films the matrix this idea of um, data being a kind of visual space a three-dimensional space that you can exist in Gibson's work, particularly Neuromancer, which is from about 1984, I think. Um, I think he, one of the terms in that book, he talks about, you know, going into this space. Case goes into this space through a kind of console, but that's um, it's a very visual way to navigate through data. And he talks about a, um, a consensual hallucination. Mm. You know that that going into somewhere like that is um, it is like going into a, into another world, into another space. And there's elements of kind of hallucination, drug culture. Um, hippiness often about cyberpunk as well which is which is kind of interesting
0: there's also a sense of um transness so transhumanism comes out of this and a kind of uh, it, it not only is everybody the same but or no not really the same because if people are often customized <laughs> with technology but uh, everybody is kind of uh, equal in the sense that they have access to the to the same um, technologies to to upgrade and to choose. And they get to choose their own destiny, I guess, which is
1: an interesting way
0: of looking at the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I think one of the things about cyberpunk which is interesting for us uh, in a subject like this is it's often the technology, as as high-end or extreme or speculative as it may be, it's often every day in that world, it's Mm. often... It's part of the everyday world. It's it's the fabric of the world in which the stories are set. Um, you're right. There's there's often a kind of ubiquity to it. Everyone has it. Um, everyone wants it. Um, and there's a, or or even everyone ignores it. Like it's kind of there in the background mm. that people just kind of go, that's the world we live in. And I think you can sort of see, see why cyberpunk resonates readily with us in, in the way our lives are at the moment because there's so much of technology, high-end technology, um, really, when you think about it, particularly how quickly we've reached this point, you know, that we're carrying around mobile computers in our pockets and, Mm. you know, you and I are talking via the the network now, you know, we kind of take it for granted and I think that's part of the world um, of cyberpunk. It's often um, it's not speculative future, you know, um, imagine if this stuff. It's basically saying this is the world we live in and then then interesting things happen.
0: And how do you how do you deal with that? So, yeah. what aspects of the world are most cyberpunkish now?
1: <laughs> um, I think, well, firstly, that yeah, that sense of everyday and everywhere um, technology. And I think it's interesting. We we mentioned William Gibson and Neuromancer, which is you know where where some of these terms come from. He didn't invent cyberpunk per se, but you know uh, you know the concept of cyberspace and the Matrix comes from that work coinciding at around the same time when computers moved out of universities and governments and banks into our homes. You know, it was the rise of the personal computer, your kind of Commodore 64 and, you know, your Apple 2C and those kinds of things. So there's a kind of interesting timing there where at the same time that cyberpunk was becoming quite popular, um, you know, early to mid 80s, those technologies were moving into our homes. And I think that every day, everywhere thing is, is quite interesting and it's something that we should be alert to. Um, what are we taking for granted that is actually, you know, part of, um, uh, you know, this kind of technological uh, shift, if you like, and how is it shaping our society and, and what are people doing with it? That's kind of one aspect of it. I think the other thing that is quite dominant in a lot of cyberpunk um, literature is that sense of do-it-yourself, um, and more particularly that users of technology find ways to use the technology that were perhaps never intended mm. by the designers of that technology. And again, to quote William Gibson, the author, you know, here's a a quote basically along the lines of the street finds uses for things that designers never imagined. Um, and I think if we're thinking about digital technology, I think it's interesting for us to sit back and try and look at how we use things, everyday things like our mobile phones and computers and um, even the software that's that's on those things and think about what was designed from the start, you know, what the people who created these things, what, what was the functionality they intended versus how do we actually use it, how do we as, as societies and, and people actually use it? I think that's another mm. um, interesting thing for us to look at.
0: And that's of course, the deeper level, but often in cyberpunk you get the characters pushing back against these um, corporations against the kind of control of governments um, and particularly corporations and now we can see that in you know i I used to teach about um, digital dissent, which was a really interesting subjects looking at protests and all sorts of things and I think right now one of the real cyberpunk movements we're seeing is often when there's a protest you'll get police forces and others deploying facial recognition technologies. And so people are now wearing masks specifically designed to um, not only confound those technologies and hide their identity, but in some cases they've got patterns on them that are meant to actually crash the computers (laughs) and actually crash the
1: algorithms. Yeah, and uh, and I think, I mean, um, that is also a a really dominant theme in cyberpunk, right, the um, capitalism, capitalism, corporations and particularly corporations blurring them the line between um you know commerce and and control. Um in mm-hmm. a lot of cyberpunk literature, you know, corporations are, are, are kind of de facto governments. Governments have almost become irrelevant apart from, you know, um maybe maintaining a police force that that um is nowhere near as corrupt as the corporations in yeah. that world. Um, and I think yeah, and the and the sense of operating underneath that, you know, um, uh, lib- you know freedom, liberty, um, protest. And you're right. I mean, there's nothing kind of more cyberpunk than some of the images that came out of the Hong Kong um, protests, you know, a year or so ago of people literally, as you say, wearing kind of, you know, camouflage and not, not kind of army camouflage, but kind of disruptive patterns. Mm. um and things and and you know modifying their 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 appearance to cameras you know to to the surveillance cameras being deployed on them to try and disrupt the artificial intelligence um facial recognition um that photos of people dressed like that against the neon um cityscape of hong kong are about as cyberpunk as you think
0: yeah uh, the aesthetic also while you get this kind of neon perspective it also uh, tends to blend Asian cosmopolitanism with with kind of Western influences as well, and you see that in in Neuromancer. You know the, the opening scenes in Neuromancer take place in uh, in Tokyo, I think Tokyo, at least at least Japan. Um, Blade Runner's L.A. is is kind of very uh, very Singapore, Hong Kong influenced in in um, in Blade Runner. Um, yeah, so you, you get these you get these kinds of melding of cultures as well, very much, very often.
1: Yeah, and again, I think partly it's the blurring of national borders. It, you know, it's quite common in in cyberpunk literature. Again, it's this sense of you know massive urban sprawl, um, very much a kind of global world. Um, yeah, you're right. Asian culture is. Is quite dominant in a lot of that fiction, and, and I think part when before,
0: when compared to other popular media. For yeah,
1: example. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, you know, the idea of mega cities and 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 you know, mega sprawls um, is kind of quite dominant in uh, you know in cyberpunk um, literature as well. Yeah. Um,
0: I, I found it quite interesting. This is totally off topic, but I found it quite interesting when. Uh, in the Detective Pikachu movie, that the, the city the city in that was almost a cyberpunk sort of city. It was real kind of uh, sort of scungy at night time, and, and a lot a lot of the early scenes took place in the back alleys that were lit up by neon and in these dank cafes. <laughs> yeah that's oh, right. Pokemon I mean, Pokemon running around the streets
1: <laughs> and this is um and this is kind of the world of cyberpunk again it's that punk thing you know like like punk music pushed back against kind of corporate rock and roll and corporate pop music um you know cyberpunk is a literary genre pushed back against um you know speculative fiction and science fiction mm. from that was about that you know gleaming perfect, civilizations and big silver spaceships and every you know everyone's kind of wafting around like a kind of neo-roman world in futuristic togas you know kind of um and you press a button and and you know you feel happy and all this kind of stuff there was was all, all hard science you know the other stuff that was going on in in science fiction was really Hard science, you know, it was almost like it was being written by scientists, you know, everything had to be meticulously researched and true about the real world. And then you get cyberpunk, which is about the, the back alleys and the dirty cafes and the, yeah. um, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll version of all that um, with te- technology laid over the top. It's no, I mean, you know, um, there's a lot of cyberpunk that relates, connects to detective fiction, crime fiction. Mm. Um, particularly sort of that 1940s American, you know, detect, private detective type story. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. down and out. They're almost criminal themselves. They live in a world a, a world of low lives, you know, pimps and, and criminals and drug dealers and cyberpunk really taps into that more than it taps into the, the gleaming vision of, you know, yeah. magnificent silver stainless steel worlds that we all live in.
0: Your, your comment that the the streets find a use for everything, you know, almost the streets find a use for people in, in cyberpunk worlds as well. People inhabit the streets, particularly these night night sort of scape streets, I think.
1: Yeah, sure. people going about their lives, <clears throat> often often kind of mundane lives in a way, but it's it's how they engage with the technology or or how the technology uses them that often becomes uh, the starting point for an interesting story, and and to get back to the point of looking around the world now, you know, um, looking at the way that we interact with a lot of technology and this sense of, are we, are we, you know, using the machines or are the machines using mm. us, and who owns the machines? <laughs> you know, that's yeah.
0: The- I mean, that was the literal literal theme of the of the Matrix, right? It, it, it the Matrix really pushed that to the extreme. Oh the machines using us as batteries or, or, or machines for our use kind of. Um, but you even get it running through, you even get the theme kind of running through other science fiction. I think where science fiction kind of picks up on cyberpunk or, or whatever it may be. Um, and of, of course I think June was probably written before this, but it's almost got that same theme of ultimately in June, June, the society has pushed back against technology altogether and and rid the world of, rid the universe of computers.
1: Yeah, Dune's interesting. And and Dune is sort of a, sort of, it is in the older form of speculative fiction that kind of predates cyberpunk. But rather than being about the hard science, it's also what you would call a kind of space opera. You know, it's this Mm. big, epic, yeah, you know, the factions and the families and whatever. But I mean, the other interesting thing going on in June is you have this kind of guerrilla warfare going on. You know, and um, uh, again, it's that kind of almost DIY technology yep. pushing back against the the kind of colonial powers. You know, it's a kind of it's an interesting thing. What well, you can kind of crib together to to, to fight back.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dave, just a couple more points to, to have a chat about. Um, we we talked about kind of what's cyberpunk in the world now, and one way to think about that is is a, a phrase that William Gibson is um, said to have said repeatedly, uh, although no one ever seems to be able to track down the original source. And that is that the future is here; it's just unevenly distributed. Or uh, there's an interview in End. NP- so I've said many times, the future is already here; it's just not very evenly mm-hmm. distributed. And I see what I do as, as, you know, pinpointing the... or pointing in the very general direction of, of the parts where change is emerging. And that... these changes emerging sufficiently quickly these days that that can very easily pass for prescience if you don't look at it too closely.
1: I think what's interesting, we tend to we talk about speculative fiction and science fiction, and it's very easy to think of what authors like Gibson and others are doing is um, you know vi- visualizing the future, you know the distant future. But, but what you know what what he says and others say about, about a lot of cyberpunk is it's about at best it's about the near future, if not the present. But, um, and what what he's doing, um, what Gibson says he's doing, is actually just kind of looking around the world now. And piecing bits together. So that sense of it, it's not evenly distributed yet in the sense that it's not obvious to us, but but the near future is here, the technologies that are emerging now are going to shape um, the world that we live in, but not in the distance. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, they're shaping pockets of the world we live in now. So, you know, artificial intelligence, um uh, you know, um, virtual reality, those kinds of things. And I think um, Gibson talks about actually talking about an unthinkable present rather than speculating about the future. He's kind of trying to imagine um, uh, where, we're, where we're at now, which is kind of a challenge for us too, right? Um, and the other thing is, I mean, other authors do it well, too. Well, I think I know- it's a
0: challenge for students. You know, this is this is something we should ask students to think about, people who are, who are having the opportunity to make that world.
1: Um, yeah the, yeah that's right I mean the other thing about um cyberpunk you know there's a kind of chicken and egg question there um you know is it just kind of piecing together and reflecting um where technology is headed or, or how much has it shaped where technology is headed you know mm. the how how much of pe- have of the technologists you know silicon valley and the elon elon Musks and Mark zuckerberg's of the world how much is how much is their idea or their vision of um, you know, apps and platforms and technology being shaped by reading fiction like this or being, being inspired by reading fiction like this versus, you know, the William Gibsons of the world just kind of um, seeing what those folk are doing and what the engineers yeah. are doing and what the coders are doing and all those kinds of stuff um, and kind of speculating about it. So there's a kind of chicken and egg thing, really. And again, it's interesting for us to think, um, you know, what what if, what if the the world that we're um, living in now can be shaped in that way, and what would we like to do to shape it?
0: yeah, absolutely Sam Oldman, I was reading yesterday he's the um, CEO of uh, OpenAI, which of course produced that chat GPT tool that everybody went crazy over the last few months. I was reading about his um, bolt hole up in in Big Sur in california you know his his moment to go off the grid when when AI takes over the world. Like quite literally this is what the guy who's running the world's biggest AI company is afraid is going to happen uh, and he's got it stocked with gold and food and whatever else he thinks he's going to need to survive.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. There's a guy, a guy called um, Ray Kurzweil
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, who's a kind of futurist technologist and an American and you know, he wrote a lot um going back decades now, about um, uh, artificial intelligence and the kind of technology curve, you know, how um, technology kind of is an exponential curve and, and where it's leading to in, in terms of things like artificial intelligence. And he talks about the kind of singularity you know, where everything just kind of collapses into this point where it's a bit like a black hole, but it's a kind of societal, technological black hole yeah. where everything <clears throat> just becomes, you know, a kind of artificial reality world. There's a little bit of kind of, you know, um, I don't know, the madness to it, Yeah, I think. But, but Ray Kurzweil's sort of um, angle on it was, and it's interesting for us to think about this, our our human view of the world, like humans evolved in a kind of analog world, right? So our senses are designed, you know, eyesight, hearing is designed for kind of analog data. And our view is very much kind of at the horizon level. You know, when we look at the world, we look out as far as we can see. And it's partly about trying to spot, you know, antelopes on the horizon to hunt down and eat or kangaroos or something. But we have this horizon view, very flat yeah, view of yeah. Technology is exponential, you know, it just boom, it's a logarithmic curve. And that's why we have a lot of trouble seeing the future and seeing where technology is headed because we're kind of not wired up through. Even though we've created this stuff, um, we, we, tend to, we tend to look at life linearly, horizontally, flatly because that's how we're wired up. Um, and so the challenge for us, you know, and in, in, in subjects like this to think about technology, to talk about digital technology is to try and um, not just look at the horizon, you know, raise mm-hmm. raise the eyes a little bit and think about where's it he- where's it heading, and not in the in the distant future. That that kind of exponential graph means it's it's tomorrow or the week after or the month after or the year after, not the decade after or the century after. Mm-hmm. You know, it's what technology is going to look like in a year is very different to what it looks like now, and then so on and so on and so on. So I think, how do we do that? How do we do that? How, are, there, are there tools we can use to help us? Are there resources we can draw upon to say, what is the future of my industry? What is the future of journalism? What's the future of um, content creation? What's the next TikTok what is what is chat GPT or or what's the next artificial intelligence yeah. you know even bigger and better than than chat GPT, like what's next? How do we how do we pick that? Travis, tell me. How do, help me. What, what,
0: do, what do I do? <laughs> what company should I invest in tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, these are really important questions, and I think hopefully the the social. Um, hopefully, where am I going with this? I think sci-fi and cyberpunk. One of the reasons it's useful to talk about in a, in a sort of academic context is. That it can start to help us imagine some of these futures.
1: Yeah, and I and I think um, that idea of thinking about everyday stuff that's around us, um, or if you are thinking about stuff that's a little bit new and a little bit kind of high tech, like artificial intelligence, um, those kinds of things, how how will it be adopted by the mainstream? Not just by Kind of the elite, or by corporations, or governments. But what's the kind of what's the what's the um, what's the back alley version of this stuff? Like, what's the what's the day to day version of this stuff? And and can I see signs of that happening already? How it's how it's. I mean, um, you know, with artificial intelligence. Um, okay, we talk about um, uh, the ability of of. of um, Artificial intelligence to generate images by by giving putting in text um, you know interior designers and architects are using that to to create completely fictional uh room layouts for for brochures for built off the plan um, you know housing units yeah. it's a, it's a very it's a very simple day-to-day use of that stuff you know it's not and and yet it, it could become the dominant way in which you go to a real estate site to speculate about is that the kind of off-the-plan uh unit i want to buy in sydney and, and everything on it is just completely generated you know by a by a clerk you know by the, by by the work by the by the intern by the by the work placement person in the architect's office typing in a few keywords you know into, two bedroom into, yeah. flat facing the journey
0: or you know for sure yeah um well w- one task i've asked the students to do this week and uh if anybody who's not a student is listening in and wants to do this is to create a piece of cyberpunk inspired artwork um <laughs> or write a cyberpunk themed short story so um if uh <laughs> if anybody wants to come up with some ideas and perhaps
1: create their own future <laughs> yeah that's fantastic i think um i think i I'd, I'd go down the art path i'm complete i'm completely not not um arty but I, I there's something about the visual aesthetic of cyberpunk that I think is really interesting as you say some of it's that um, completely over the top like um tokyo on steroids neon world uh which is kind of interesting but there's also the kind of um you know there is the the dark underbelly the, the the someone you know some someone sitting at home plugged into their console you know wired up i think there's there's some interesting yeah interesting things there. I, I feel a bit kind of plugged in and wired up at the moment talking to you Travis <laughs> <laughs> um
0: if uh if anybody's thinking about uh the cyberpunk in the here and now. I think one of the one of the really cyberpunk projects that's underway is uh, Neom. This um, kind of government-led in rein- reinvestment uh, in the Middle East, and uh, they're planning to create a a, a city that is um, essentially built in a long, thin, narrow strip. Um, with mirrors on all sides and essentially all the services take place within a kind of um, narrow couple of hundred metre city, (laughs) the deserts on the outside. So
1: completely, yeah, completely artificial. I mean, and I guess, um, you know, just occurred to me when we're talking about cyberpunk and, and the present, I mean, you only have to look at cyber security, right? As we're li- we're living kind of the cyberpunk world now cyber security is just endlessly in the news we have a cyber security you know research project going on at charles sturt hacking you know our data um breaches i mean that that's cyberpunk we're living it right data data has value data is the new kind of mining you know mining world people are, people are mining us and robbing us blind of our data and uh <laughs> We're, we're living it. We're living the cyberpunk dream. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Dave, Thank thanks so much for joining me to talk about cyberpunk. No worries. Um, apologies for talking too much, if anything. <laughs> Not at all.
0: Following on from the chat about cyberpunk, I also decided to record a conversation with Jasmine Connell, who's a PhD student at the University of Wollongong. Jasmine's looking at, amongst other things, artificial intelligence, Artificial intelligence programs like ChatGPT have caused a bit of a stir lately, and we haven't even seen yet the entrance of the big players like Google into this space. Although Microsoft has released a version of their search platform, Bing, which is enhanced by its integration with an AI. Here's my chat with Jasmine.
2: Hello, um, I'm Jasmine. I am a PhD student at the University of Wollongong, and I'm doing my PhD on non-human online persona. And I'm also a tutor or teacher at the University of Wollongong in media and communications, and I mainly focus on digital media and communications.
0: What is online non-human persona?
2: Oh, it's a bit of a heavy one, straight up. It is... <laughs> so persona is... The everyday performance of self, so we can think of that as sort of an identity theory, but not. It's the ways that we present ourselves in public, and I'm particularly interested in how we present ourselves online using things like social media and other things on the internet. But I'm also interested in taking all the existing theories about persona, which primarily align with humans, and applying them to non-human things like AI. Uh, pet influences
0: and game characters. Cool. Well, I'm glad you mentioned AI because that's what you've agreed to have a chat with me today about. Um, Lots of people got very excited, uh, worried, um, freaked out when ChatGPT released their generative AI, sorry, when OpenAI released their generative AI ChatGPT last year. And then, of course, we've had um, Bing's, Microsoft's new, uh, being integrated AI (laughs) since then. Um, and a lot of people don't really know what we're talking about yet. So we just cover a bit of ground and let's have a chat about, uh, AI. What are you seeing out there around these kinds of AIs?
2: Well, we'd already be quite familiar with social media. That's the most recognizable form of AI we'd see every day. Um, as well as Google search, Bing search, things like that. But in terms of generative AI, I did some digging into this and there's so many of them out there. So we've got Chat, Chat PT, uh, Midjourney, Dali, Stable Diffusion. They're all image generators. Gremly mm-hmm. is a good one that we use quite often. Um, there's heaps of text generators out there just by AI. Writer, Deepfakes is one that people are quite concerned about, understandably. Um, and besides from that, there's heaps of um, generative AI popping up around creative things like game development, image editing, video mm-hmm. generating and music generating and vocal generating as well for audio and stuff.
0: Yeah. I might say with deepfakes for a moment, The this has been something that's yeah. been... Uh, as you mentioned, generating some concern for a while. Deepfake is this notion that you can use a, a, an AI to um, automatically sort of edit a video uh, and put somebody else's face or voice on the on the video, for example, or, or, or produce a photograph that looks like it's speaking um, using these kind of advanced technologies. And it's been used for... Um, revenge porn and it's also been used for misinformation political misinformation and all sorts of things so it's a kind of advanced uh editing um editing tool for videos to produce videos that you know people look at on the surface and say that looks real but it's not and that can cause obviously some some problems uh for lots of people out there so Yeah, AI has been around for a little while, but these new generative tools that have started to come out in the last six months, 12 months, uh, or come to the public consciousness have have really broken through for a little while, but they are part of a bigger suite of tools. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned algorithms as well. You know, for a long time, recommendation algorithms have been driving our lives on social media, on What we watch on Netflix, um, those are are forms of of AI as well. None of these have really reached what might be called artificial general intelligence though, which is the the state at which it really is difficult to tell the difference between a human and these technologies. You might not have um, highly technical knowledge on this yet, but where do we think that line is, Jasmine?
2: I've read a little bit about artificial general intelligence, and I do agree with you that we are nowhere near that. And um, I actually got us a little statistic about this. Um, people are predicting that we might reach AGI around twenty forty.
1: Mm-hmm. Still, yeah. still a
2: while away. Soon. Yeah, still a while away. And then there was also this term called superintelligence, which is sort of off the back of AGI, these computers that are so intelligent that they can improve themselves and it's almost the last invention you ever need to make because it will then take over inventing new things. So that was predicted to come about 20 years after AGI. Mm-hmm. And that's what we often see in sci-fi movies is the all controlling AIs that take over the world Yeah, we need to rebel against.
0: But for our purposes, these kind of generative AIs, which, um, you know, simply put, the way that the text models work, for example, is uh, they find the most likely word to follow given previous word. And so just like Google searches the internet, these things sort of search their existing databases and figure out the most likely word to follow the word that they've just chosen. And they therefore produce text that um, looks often on the surface, to be quite accurate. Um, so it's it's starting yeah. to produce some concern. I've seen um, literary magazines express concern. They're starting to find lots of submissions, sort of low-quality submissions generated quickly by some of these AIs uh, or rather by people using these AIs and submitted to the magazines and they've actually finding that they're getting flooded with these submissions, which is um, a bit of a frustrating or surprising development. And it points to some of the concern in artistic communities as if these things are producing content, whether or not we might call it high quality or artistic content, where does that leave human creators?
2: Yeah, it's, it's the big question with all these developments. And my personal perspective on it is that it is still a tool that we can learn how to use to assist us in the creative process. That's not to say that it's not going to take over certain elements of jobs, um, the same way that computers took over certain elements of jobs and that's just now the norm. But there is some quite serious ethical concerns around copyrights mm-hmm how these AIs are trained because as you mentioned earlier they do work off databases but they're also a black box so we don't actually know what the database is where they scraped that data from and we also don't know how it's making its decisions because it doesn't generally tell us that I mean chat GPT will attempt to give you an explanation but at the end of the day, the AI itself does not understand the decision it makes. It yeah.
0: just comes to that decision. And we can really see that with, um, in an obvious way, with uh, images of people quite often, which are gener- generated with additional, I, I particularly saw a striking set of images the last couple of days, which were um sort of dance poses and unusual poses. And because those images often feature limbs sort of contorted in strange ways, the AI can't figure it out, you know, it kind of knows, okay, the, the flesh colour goes here on this background in roughly this position, but it doesn't know not to give a person two limbs on the same side, right, two, two arms or yeah. multiple um, hands or, or lots, lots more fingers, for example, because it doesn't know what those things actually are. Lots of
2: trouble with hands and fingers. It's yeah. actually one of the ways you can recognise an AI image immediately.
0: And eyes as well. I've yeah. A bit yeah. Teeth too. I <laughs> It doesn't.
2: Just anything detailed. Yeah. It doesn't do a great job, but from far away and landscape stuff, it does more. Right.
0: It, it raises a question of how we engage with images because if we're just sort of scrolling past an image, you might not spend the time to look at it in, in a lot of detail. And so it might go, oh, yeah, that's interesting you know, and you and you move on in in a second or two, um, and if you're not actually paying attention, you can go. You can assume it's a it's a quality image when, if you looked at it more closely, you'd go, "Oh, actually, that elbow shouldn't be there." That
2: person's got seven fingers.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. On yeah. Too many hands. Exactly. Um, where do we think this is going? Let's let's get speculative, Jasmine. What do you think is going to happen?
2: That question because this is actually what I'm also doing in my thesis. So I've got a whole chapter dedicated to discussing where I think this is going, and it's um, something I've discussed with Dr. Chris Moore quite a bit. Um, in the next few years, we will obviously see a lot more of these tools. I personally think it's going to become like Adobe, where someone is going to acquire all the different tools and you'll have a subscription similar to Adobe. Choose, you know, ChatGPT, the journey, various things, and we'll start accessing it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, they've already gone behind paywalls, but I think the paywalls are going to get more solid and more rigid. And once the people who are developing them have tested them enough, they'll no longer be free. So that's what I think in terms of how we'll access them. But in terms of their capabilities, it really is endless because it's just. Getting so advanced at such an exponential rate, like it's not inconceivable that in the next five or ten years you can log into Netflix and tell Netflix what you want to watch, and it will on the spot give you that TV show by drawing on a database of various things. So I think yeah. we'll see more um, on demand things like that. Um, but oh, I did have a little bit of a list, but
0: I've lost it. If you've got anything <laughs> that's okay. Well, I think that's that's an interesting notion, you know, what if Netflix starts deploying this kind of tech and uses um, generative AI to sort of build TV shows on the fly? We've already seen them experiment with uh, choose-your-own-adventure TV on a, on a couple of occasions. There was one in the Camp Cretaceous series um, last year, and they, they mo- most famously did it with um, Black Mirror where there was an episode where you can choo- choose um, the ending, right, but those pathways, although they branch off in a couple of different directions, often end up back in the same place and they're not necessarily the choices are personalised but the um, the response isn't personalised. So the notion that maybe we'll see a TV show where you can make a choice and it gives you what you want um, is interesting.
2: Yeah, well- with the current technology and how fast
0: it's progressing, it's
2: not impossible that that could happen quite soon. And the other one that I wanted to bring up as well is how we access information on the internet um, is already governed by algorithms. And that's got its own set of issues with bias and stuff like that. But um, is our search engine going to become like Bing search where you type it in and instead of getting a list of results, you're getting one answer Mm -hmm. given to you by the AI.
0: So you no longer have to, or no longer are able to, might be a more correct way, choose the best answers. Choose choose the ones that look um, the most right or the most authoritative to you. You um, are required to trust. The technology, and that's what we're seeing with Bing. I've been playing with the Bing one for the last couple of yeah. days, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm feeding it stuff that I'm already working on, stuff you know, usually where I've already written something, and so I know what I'm doing with it. And then I say, okay, what would you do with this? Because I want to see what it does compared to compared to what I would do. Uh, and a couple on a couple of occasions, you know, it does sort of throw something in, and you go, oh yeah, I didn't say that very clearly, or I didn't uh, include that bit of information which could be included, and so that's perhaps one way you can actually use these things productively. I think um, compare and contrast your own thoughts uh, rather than we would hope that people don't just rely on the on the generative AI to write their work entirely. Uh, but if you, yeah. if you think of it as an assistant, think of it even as a bit of yeah. peer review of saying, does this make sense based on what this technology is throwing up? It can, you know, help generate, um, Ideas and gaps and those kinds of things quite helpfully, I think.
2: Yeah, hundred percent. Like the thing about AI is it it thinks in a way that we don't think, so quite often it's very useful, exactly what you said, taking what you've written or something you've produced and seeing how they, I would think about it. Um, But the major concern with these tools is that there are people that are going to see it as a shortcut and going to see it as the easy way out. A lot of discussions at UOW surrounding how we approach this with mm-hmm. students, especially um, because we're aware that people are going to try it. Um, and we kind of came to a similar conclusion to yourself um, that people should be using these as assistants rather than a replacement yeah. of the work itself. So our first years aren't allowed to use it because they need to get those skills for themselves
0: okay. first. And then they can use the AI to assist yeah. them from there. So different institutions are responding differently. My my institution yeah. CSU is um, has come to a position that you can use these technologies in assignments if the academic has specifically allowed it in the subject outline. So it has to be specifically allowed uh, and therefore guided by the academic staff member. And if it, if it's not um, given that endorsement in text in in that legal document the subject outline then it can't be used
2: yeah uow is exactly the same university-wide but that's just an example of how two different subjects are approaching mm-hmm. because i'm teaching the first year and the third year and the first years, are, the third years
0: are, ah right so that's, so that's yeah
2: it's very interesting um, all the different yeah. approaches
0: I happened to read an article just today in The Conversation which is talking about um, potential options for universities and responding to this kind of stuff. And one of the suggestions they used was to have students producing rich rich media like podcasts, um, for example. And I'm like, on the surface that works, but you can just as easily ask these technologies to produce a podcast script as you can, a sort of formal essay. So where does where does that leave you? Um, and not only that, you can have the AI put voices—you uh, know, AI-generated voices—to to text as well. So, um, in theory, you could you can start now producing podcasts that are entirely AI-generated, um, which poses very interesting questions about even those rich media assessments.
2: Yes, that's exactly right. Um, with the current tools that we have now, you could script, produce, and edit a podcast entirely through the AI and not have to do much at all. Yeah,
0: exactly. Jasmine, is there anything else you wanted to raise or have a chat about? We've covered a lot of ground in, in a short amount of time.
2: Uh, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Um, I know we were going to talk about
0: specifically
2: comms and media.
0: Jobs. Yeah, uh, yeah, comms roles.
2: I saw an interesting case, you might have seen it as well. The first official copyright case for Mid Journey mm-hmm. uh, came to a conclusion recently. And this was in the US, and it's a comic book where all of the images were created with Mid Journey. And they came to the conclusion that the author could not copyright those images that Mid Journey produced. They said that's because mid-journey did the creating and the person entering the prompt was merely directing mid-journey what to do. So there's already these discussions about, you know, sort of what percentage of role does the AI have versus the human, how mm-hmm. do we police that for copyright? So that's going to be quite interesting for people working in media cons, because they have to be aware of copyright laws, but also
0: how to use these tools and not get in trouble. Yeah, and I guess if the copyright isn't vested in the, or if copyright can't be uh, embedded in the work because it's been generated by technology rather than other than a human, um, then it takes away the economic incentive to engage in these activities in the first place, potentially.
2: Yes, which is the concern for creators and anyone in the
0: creative industry. Yeah.
2: Like on top of the concern of these things potentially taking over areas of your job itself. So it's going to be interesting to see what that precedent does. Yes. Yeah. The future
0: cases it takes me back to a case from about um, 10 or 10 or 12 years ago where there was a, a camera left in the jungle uh, and monkeys effectively took took photos and took selfies um, with the camera and the photographer who owns the equipment tried to claim the copyright but it was determined that because the monkeys had actually captured the photos or the selfies uh they couldn't be, they couldn't be copyrighted because you can't vest copyright in an animal, um, which is the same sort of, co- That's you know, exactly concept. exactly the
2: same thing, yeah. what they said. Yeah, it was interesting because they said you can copyright the, the text in the comic book because we're assuming that that was written mm-hmm. by the author, but just all the images weren't able to be copyrighted, Yeah, which is a little bit of a concern for people who are hoping to use Mid Journey
0: um, commercially. Yeah. Absolutely. Jasmine, thanks so much. We covered uh, so much there. It was really interesting chat. I appreciate you joining me for it. Thanks, for me. For the final part of the episode, I'm going to switch to the case study by Dr. Tracy Edmondson.
3: Social media, really social? Is it good for society? Um, a, a headline sort of caught my eye um, late last year, which was um, around a, a London coroner ruling. That the death of a young girl resulted from social media, um, and whilst you know this is quite an extreme, I guess, and disturbing, um, you know, way to highlight um, one of the, I guess, the very negative sides and possibilities of um, today's social media landscape. I think you know it's important to see whilst social media presents many opportunities, there are also many challenges that you know, that aren't necessarily all good for society. I guess part of this subject also, um, one of the readings that you were given was um, from Bruins who talked about when you are trying to study internet, social media, et cetera, that you should look at it through the lens of society's interactions with it, not just the internet, so so to speak. Um, I similarly did this when I um, looked at um, the impact of social media through the lens of professional sport in Australia. So, and I adopted that framework, Um, you know, it was a mediatisation framework and the idea was that in studying the transformation of the media, it's necessary to study the transformation of everyday life, culture and society in the context of the transformation of the media. So it's very similar to the approach that um, Bruins has recommended here. So as such, I looked at this question um whilst highlighting um one of the you know I guess the disturbing negatives. Um I looked at that question of, you know, is it good for society through the lens of how I um looked at social social media and its impact on um sport. And one of the the um things that came out of my thesis are really I guess um was how um the sporting on a basically how sporting organisations um, or what they believe is news or newsworthy has changed. So, we're talking about again, um, you know, is it good for society? Those of you who've studied um, journalism and are aware of code of ethics will probably be, be able to relate to that. Um, you know, is it in the public interest? So, traditionally, media in line with the industry's code of ethics could publish news if it was deemed. To be in Um, one of the people that I interviewed, uh, you know, really um, quite aptly described the more current environment as, you know, feeling like we're in a period of time where the public interested is the structuring force, not the public interest. Meaning, you know, if the public's interested in something that they'll print it, regardless of, I guess, what the um, outcomes are. This sort of, to me, leads to, you know, impacts of. Um, on ethics of journalism practice, um, which was highlighted in, in another paper that I did. And um, the, the study and the talks with the, the people from the various sporting organisations showed that there were um, you know, many violations of core ethical standards of Australian journalism, um, such as striving for accuracy, doing the utmost to give a fair opportunity to reply and, op- and achieving fair correction of errors. Um, you know, all of these things have really like, have sort of come about as a result of the, you know, twenty four seven um news cycle.
2: Hello, my name is Luna. I'm from South Korea. And I th- was majored in in industrial engineering and also double majored in global media. I hope I'll do best in Bethesda
0: C S U. Thanks to Dr. Tracy Edmondson, Dr. David Cameron, and Jasmine Connell for joining me on this episode. I hope you'll stick around for future episodes of Digital Society. My name is Travis Holland. Talk to you next time.